Amen. Thank you, Renee, and it's good to see everybody this morning. I would encourage you to follow along if you've got your copy of God's Word in Acts 4. We'll mainly be in verses 23 through 31, but this is kind of a, an overview sermon of the entirety of chapters 3, verse 1 through 4, 31. And today's message is called Living with Boldness. And just want to give a caveat that this is not like bravado or being a jerk. You know, some people are like, I'm just bold. (laughs) No, no, no. We're talking about Christian boldness. There's a big difference, okay? So from Acts 4, 23 through 31. Well, I'm almost 40, and so when I look back to my college days, man, they get further and further in the rearview mirror. But in 2003, the summer... I was home, and the summer job that I landed was working at Lowe's Home Improvement Store. And little did I know, as a nearly 40-year-old dad, I'd be spending a lot of time there in the future. But but back then, I was just an employee, and I got hired on in the lawn and garden department. And I had this idea, like, man, what a cush job. All summer, I can help little old ladies with their flower beds and just kind of goof off, and it's going to be glorious. Well, well, nothing could be further from the truth. It was the worst job I've ever had. How many of y'all just have a job or had a job that you just hate, you know, when you look back at it? And what it ended up being was a job where every day as a ginger in the baking hot sun, I loaded railroad cross tie after cross ties. People got their flower beds in order and bags of mulch for landscaping companies. And it was minimum wage and just a horrible experience all the way around. One of the only redeeming qualities about that job was the friendship I struck up with a young man named Aaron. He was close to my age, and and guys, this was back in the day of the Fast and the Furious. I had this pimped out Mitsubishi Eclipse, and and he had one too, and we were all in the cars and, you know, big mufflers and, you know, the things in the back, the spoilers, you know, we still see those around in South Florida. And so we would talk about our cars and have lunch together, had a lot in common, and I found out he was also a fisherman, so we had been planning this big trout fishing trip, you know, really close to my house where he might come over and stay the night. Well, as time went on, I I was trying to learn to live up my faith as a Christian, and I got an incredible burden to share the gospel with him, but I just was so intimidated. I I just never seemed to, to get around to it. You know, I would think about, well, maybe when he comes home with me to go fishing and We would be there at lunch, and I would just get that lump in my throat. I just could not get the words out. But the more our friendship went along, I don't think I've ever been burdened as strongly to minister, to share the faith. But every single time I close my mouth in fear, as opposed to proclaiming in boldness. And that that idea that I would eventually get around to it, it never happened. Because I got a, a much better job not long after that at a... A golf course, just the cart boy, I got to play golf on the clock, and you know how golf go, or life goes, that uh, eventually you get busy, and all communication ended up ceasing with him, and he just kind of became a, a memory, a short-term friend. And so I just wonder how you might have responded, or how you might be responding. You know, is there anybody in your life from your past or from your present that you have a burden for? that you feel like God's placed in your path, that that you just get this sense from the Spirit that you should be reaching out and investing and 
and mentoring, but the reality is you're intimidated. You know, you're scared to death. Or it could be even that you just feel pressure against your faith, that you're just intimidated in general, trying to live your Christian faith out in a place like South Florida that's not all that friendly to the gospel. And so I think the big overarching question this morning is when we face pressure and persecution and intimidation, do we live our faith out with boldness? Do we open our mouths and share about Jesus or do we cower in fear? Well, in today's text, as opposed to fearing man, we see once again that this early Christian community, they're trusting, they're fearing, and they're obeying God again and again. And so just for a summary, hang with me this morning. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we see the power of the gospel once again on great display. Remember Peter and John, they go up to the temple at the gate called Beautiful, a temple gate, an entrance. And there's a man there who was lame, he was handicapped, and he was begging for money. And remember what Peter told him, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus I command you, rise up and walk. And remember that guy gets up, and everybody's amazed. And I love what verse 8 says. It says, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, what a scene that was for, for everybody who had seen that man laying around there for years, decades maybe. And then often as it is in Scripture, the the healing provided a further platform. It gave them credibility to go ahead and share the gospel again. And so Peter and John, as they enter the temple in chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, they go into a portico called Solomon's Portico, and they begin proclaiming the gospel. And their preaching here is just as bold as it was on the day of Pentecost. They begin to say that, hey, it was by the power of God that this man was raised up to walk again. And oh, by the way, you actually killed God's son, (laughs) and you're wicked people. And so you need to turn from your sins and trust in him. And as they proclaim the word, chapter 4, verse 4 says, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's just the men. And so listen, guys, I understand that that South Florida is challenging and and just statistically churches just don't tend to grow here like they do in other places. But I'm a believer that the more seed we sling, the more seed we sow, the likelihoods of conversions will naturally increase because the word of God does not return void. It is powerful. And the more we speak it and proclaim it, even though we may have obstacles and hard hearts here, we're going to see some things happen. It's powerful to change hearts and lives. It hasn't changed from the first century until today. Well then, despite all the good news, we see here in chapter 4 that gospel ministry, it will always eventually entail opposition. We're told here in chapter 4 that the Sadducees were greatly annoyed And they were greatly annoyed at these men because they were proclaiming the resurrection and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And they were political and religious leaders and they viewed these men to be a threat to their power and to their institution. And so they asked them, you know, by whose authority did you proclaim this man's name? And and by whose authority did you raise this guy up to a, a whole life? And they said it's by the name of Christ, that salvation's in Christ alone. 
And so this put the religious leaders into a really tough spot. They, they wanted to punish these men severely. If they could have gotten away with it at this point, they would have probably even had them killed. But nobody could deny the miracle. The whole temple's rejoicing at the healing they saw. I mean, 5,000 men, let alone the women and children, came to faith. So they're, they're kind of trapped here. So what they basically do is they threaten them with their lives. They threaten further punishment, and they send them away. And so the scene is persecution is mounting. And they probably have this idea, wait a minute, if this keeps happening, if we keep preaching, it keeps mounting, I mean, we're likely to lose our lives just like Jesus Christ did. So how would they respond? Well, in chapter 4, the text that Renee read, we see their response. And as opposed to cowering, in fear, they just keep it up. They keep going. They keep proclaiming the word of God with all boldness. And I believe, again, these principles are universal. If we study their prayer, we can glean some keys so that we too can be bold in the context in which we live. And so here's the big idea if you're a note taker. Christian boldness comes when we praise God when we possess solid theology, and then when we dedicate ourselves to prayer. You will experience boldness in your life if your life is centered on praising Jesus, if you're a person of the Bible, and if you're a person of great prayer. So the first key to boldness is living a life of praise and worship to God. That's number one. Living a life of praise and worship to God. Notice verse 24, and when they heard it, again, the report, they come back with the report, right? That, hey, we, we preach, the gospel went out, people got saved, the man got healed, but yet we were arrested and threatened. So they bring that report back, and here's the response. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I mean, notice how striking that response is. As opposed to being filled with anxiety, responding fearfully, freaking out. No, no, no. They just start praising God. God, you're the sovereign God who made the earth and the sea and everything in them. And so in the midst of their persecution, we find them praising the great creative abilities of God. It reminds me of Psalm 19, 1 through 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And then in Nehemiah 9, even way back in the Old Testament, we see similar language as the people of Israel confess their sins. So in verse 5 and 6 of Nehemiah 9, the Levites exhort the people, here's what they're exhorted to do, stand up. Bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And so if we too want to join in with the, the boldness that we see from the people of old, 
to this early Christian community in the New Testament, one trademark of our lives must be unceasing praise and worship of the sovereign God who's the creator of everything. And as the early apostles are modeling, that praise must continue whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we are in the valley. He's worthy of our worship no matter what we go through. And here's the key. As you engage in heartfelt worship and as you saturate yourself with the person and the presence of Jesus, you will be naturally energized for evangelism. As you dwell in his presence, you won't be able but to help to, to speak the gospel. If Jesus really is your passion, you won't be able to shut your mouth about him. And I love it, by the way, but do you understand, the moment I walked in this door, what were most conversations about this morning? College football yesterday. And I rejoiced in it. Hey, Tennessee got a good victory. Florida, not so much. My wife is happy. She went to Kentucky. But we're, we're, we're passionate about our teams, and we're talking about them. The point is, if we're passionate about King Jesus, we will talk about him. Recall Acts 4.13 it says, now when they, the council, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. But they recognized they had been with Jesus. So friends, understand, to make a, a massive difference in your neighborhood, your school, or your community, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a theologian. You simply have to be a Christian who's spending lots of time with your Lord Jesus. And then in Acts 4.20, after being exhorted to no longer speak to anybody in the name of Jesus, Peter and John say, for we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. It's like, hey, it's just who we are. I mean, you're, you're exhorting me to do something against my very nature, against the beat of my heart. And so what I'm saying is that as God's people, on a, on a regular basis, no matter what pressure we're experiencing, if we're lifting our eyes to God and, and dwelling on His creative abilities, His sovereignty, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, His love for you, you won't help but be able to, to praise Him and to speak of Him and to share His goodness with other people. Now, let me close this point with this. I, I love evangelism training. I think programs and Moments where we get together and put stuff on the screen is fine. We can all grow in our ability to proclaim the gospel. But ultimately, the art and the skill of evangelism, it is something that is caught, C-A-U-G-H-T, and not taught. I mean, if you get a young man or a young woman who's recently engaged, you don't have to teach them how to share that news. It goes all over every social media feed known to man. You know, like for six months after the fact, every picture that the lady's in, she's got the ring here, you know, making sure everybody can see my ring right now, right? It's caught. And that's how evangelism works. It is a practice that's more caught than taught as we become contagious worshipers of Jesus. Well, secondly, to be bold witnesses for Christ, we must also be good theologians. And theologian just means that we're to be good studiers of God's Word to be people of the Bible. So number two, we must possess a proper understanding of God's sovereignty. As His people, we need to, to anchor our lives and, and our faith in the sovereignty of our God. Notice verses 25 through 28. 
And just a reminder, God's sovereignty, it's his complete ruling power over all creation, over all the happenings in the world. Aren't you so thankful that God is in control of everything? Even when it seems like he's not, when your life is spinning out of control, he remains on his throne. And great peace comes from that realization. Well, in this text, we see two examples of God's sovereignty. First of all, we see fulfilled messianic prophecy. I know it's a mouthful, but I'm basically saying that we see prophecies that were given in the olden times being fulfilled before the very eyes about Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so here these believers, as they're praying, they're quoting Psalm 2, 1 through 2, which they're treating as a a promise about Jesus being fulfilled again before their very eyes. Uh, They're saying that the kings and the rulers are corresponding to Herod Antipas and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They are exemplifying the people who participated in the crucifixion. And of course, if you love apologetics and you love rational arguments for the faith, you know that there are hundreds of other messianic promises, prophecies that find their completion and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the odds of these prophecies, hundreds of them, that were first written hundreds and even thousands of years ago, coming to fruition with as much specificity as they do in Jesus, I mean, the odds are astronomical. And it points us to the fact that there was a sovereign God in charge the whole time. He's directing everything toward His Son, the the person of Jesus. And so I'm saying that fulfilled prophecy is proof that God is sovereign. His sovereignty is on full display when we think about fulfilled prophecy. And the second way we see His power is in, number two, His providence. Okay, you've probably heard of like Providence, Rhode Island, you know, Providence Baptist Church. We hear that term all the time. Providence simply means... God's divine involvement in and the ordering of the events of the creation. Like, you know, he's sovereign in the sense that he stands above everything and he sees everything. He's in control. He's directing. But yet he's a personal God. He's transcendent, but yet he's imminent. And he's involved in the everyday details of our lives. He's directing and steering and helping us to live our lives for Him, to make decisions that glorify Him. And if we had testimony time, I'm sure that we have a room full of people that could proclaim how God in specific ways has directed your life. Or maybe that's one prayer you'd ask this morning. Just please pray that He would keep directing me because I'm kind of in the spot right now. And you can trust that He will. So verse 27 says, For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. I mean, that's weighty, right? It says, wait a minute, there's people gathered together against Jesus, 
who maliciously want to kill your son who did kill him, and yet they're saying, but God anointed all that. So while human beings were certainly responsible for the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, verse 28 says that the death of Christ was ultimately planned by God. The actions of those who murdered Jesus were actually playing right in to God's sovereign plan of redemption. So having done their worst, the devil thought he had won, but in actuality, they were actually succeeding in fulfilling God's plan. Now somebody explain that to me. We can't. We can't get our heads around how all that works, but this wedding between God's sovereignty and our responsibility and how all that plays out is called concurrence. And there's many things in life that we might consider natural occurrences, like snow and rain and hurricanes, but the book of Job says that God's responsible for all of that. So he's concurrently involved with everything that we experience. And though we make free choices, God is still somehow involved in our decision-making. He's directing our free choices even toward his sovereign ends. And so my aim is not to explore all of that. I think sometimes the best thing we can say is what Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three: 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I'm just trying to point out that this is one way we see God's sovereignty. Only a sovereign God could allow us to make free choices and yet remain in control of everything. And one thing about God's providence, His planning, one thing that is dear to His heart is the Great Commission. God is a God who wants every nation and tribe and tongue to hear about Him, to worship Him. And that's his plan, but yet he's invited us into that plan. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, I understand, thinking back to my interaction with Aaron, that evangelism is intimidating. I'm thinking, Brittany, about our neighbors, like we've got great relationships, but man, like I need to take that next step and begin to point more clearly to Jesus, and I'm a little nervous about that. Like I get a little sweaty when I think about, you know, doing that. And so how is it that we can live this commission out? Well, I think it's two ways. Number one, understand that what we're called into is a grand plan that is birthed out of God's heart to see it a privilege that we get to be a part of that. What a joy that is, that, that God could have just snapped his fingers and, and done it, but yet he calls us to be participants. And it may be most encouraging to live all, it says that he will be with us as we go. The God who spoke the universe into existence promises to be with you in your driveway when you speak to your neighbor. I mean, how glorious is that? How many of y'all could even testify that, man, I was so intimidated, I was so nervous, but God gave me the words. On the mission trip, in the funeral home, with your coworker, understanding God's sovereignty can't help but fill us with boldness. Because at the end of the day, we answer to Him alone. That's it. Like, like why should we fear man? We should fear God alone. 
And then finally, and this is more of an elementary key, but it's right here in the text. Number three, to, to live with boldness, we just pray for boldness. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like sometimes if you lack boldness, have you actually prayed for it? Like, God, help me to be more bold. Help me to open my mouth. Well, look at what verses 29 through 31 says. Again, this is a prayer, but notice this part. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And I love this. Like, he didn't say and allow them to stop. He didn't pray, God, may their threats stop. He just says, and grant to your servants to continue to speak with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, as it pertains to prayer, I've always loved Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive help in our time of need. I mean, just think about what a, an amazing privilege that prayer is. You know, in, in a day and age when we all love to like get maybe like a, a selfie with a celebrity, uh, there's some celebrities that rack up big bucks like giving cameo shout-outs, right? You get a, a surprise shout-out from your favorite celebrity. Like, we just want to have a conversation with somebody that matters. We'll stand in line for hours for an autograph. But the Christian's privilege because of Jesus and his sacrifice and the veil being torn is that we can talk to the God of everything anytime we want to. And he wants us to. I mean, he, he, his phone's always open, right? His text messages, he'll always reply. He wants to hear from you. It's a beautiful privilege. But yet, sometimes we wrestle and we struggle in prayer. I don't know about you, but there's some things I've prayed for, am praying for, and I pray again and again and again. And, and some years go by, and it's like, God, are you, are you there? Why aren't you answering? And we know that it is a privilege, but it can be challenging to persevere in prayer. Well, maybe here's one piece of advice or one principle from the Scriptures. Sometimes we struggle in our prayer lives because we pray wrongly. We don't pray right. James... In 4, 1 through 3, he warns against worldliness, and he says this. Again, he's speaking to a church. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It sounds like a day in my house with my toddlers, you know, every... every Every day. So, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, God convicted me with this. How often are my prayers mainly centered around what I want in my passions? Better life, healthy family, kids that excel in everything they do. Knox being the best soccer three-year-old in Boca Raton, you know, like... I mean, it's okay to, to pray for those things, but I think the point is far too often we pray selfishly. Many times we come to church for only what benefits us. It's just about a quick pick-me-up, and, and, and I've done God this way. We treat him as mainly just the cosmic genie that we can rub a little bit so he might pacify our needs, and 
our wants, and the moment he stops doing that, we just kind of kind of check out. And so one honest question this morning is, is how often do our prayers go beyond Jesus, help me, bless me, keep me? You know, we pray things like that all the time. Well, while there's a lot to be said about prayer, I, I think there's a promise here in Acts 4 that there's a prayer that will always be honored by God. And I think a prayer he'll always answer, no matter what, is a prayer for boldness. If you ask God to give your boldness, to play your part in his plan, he's going to answer that prayer. He's going to help you. He's going to empower you. He's going to equip you for the ministry he's called you to. Prayers that are in line with God's heart and his plans, they are powerful. Remember, even in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Early in the prayer... We're instructed to praise God, to hallow His name, and then to pray that His kingdom would come. And it comes through you. It comes through you living out the Great Commission. And I promise you, if you pray for boldness to be true to that plan, God will answer that prayer every single time. And I think you'll find that that is so much more invigorating and enlivening than Him simply meeting what supposed wants or needs you think you have. Could it be one of the main reasons that we aren't making the difference like we want to, a simple lack of prayer toward that end? Well, going back in time to that summer of 2003, I was enjoying my new job as a range boy at the golf course. I mean, I mean, literally, they would let me, at the end of the day, I was the last cart, and I got to play nine holes of golf every day. You know, as my shift wound down, I got all the carts and put back in the cart barn. And barn is a glorious job. And we had a chef at the country club. He would trade me hamburgers for a certain golf ball. Like, if I gave him three golf balls, he'd give me a burger. I mean, I was living the dream as a college student, you know. My best friend was a lifeguard. Man, we just lived it up, you know, all, all day long. And so, one day, though, I was driving home, about a half-hour drive, and and that lifeguard friend, he called me. He's like, man, Cameron, I just something crazy is going on. I've got to ask you this question. He goes, you remember there was a news story a couple weeks before that time. It rocked the community. There was a 25-year-old graduate student. Her name was Sandy Jeffers. You can Google this. And she had been stalked and sexually assaulted, and she was murdered. Somebody literally threw her body off a cliff in the Great Smoky Mountains. And so there's this massive manhunt, and, and my friends said, like, like, Cameron, do you remember that guy you worked with at Lowe's? I'm like, yeah, like, his name was Aaron, Aaron Skinny. He's like, that, that's the guy that killed that girl. I mean, I was shocked in that moment. I mean, I, I was rattled because, you know, based on our surface-level conversations, he was a cool dude. I didn't see, like, any indicators and but, but what I learned in that moment, and again, God convicts. He doesn't crush, right? Like, he even forgives us for the ways that we drop the ball. But the first thought that came to my mind was like, man, God always knows what he's doing. Like, if you get a burden for somebody, if he wants you to minister to somebody, life and death can literally be hanging in the balance. And so I can remember after that, he, he ended up getting arrested. He confessed all the crimes. He is still in prison, serving a life term to this day. And this is way back in the day. You young people won't know anything about this, but MySpace was a thing, you know, back in the day. It was like an online journal, and, and I got on there. 
and it was still up before the authorities took it down, I was reading things like, he, he was saying, I hate my life. Every day my stepdad comes home and beats me to a bloody pulp, and I'm cold, I'm, I'm miserable, and, and I'm lonely. And so that's what was going on beneath in the heart when he was working with me, slinging railroad cross ties. And so God did redeem that situation to some degree. I actually started writing letters to his prison. I'm like, God, I can at least do something now. And he actually actually replied to my letters. And so I can't say he ever came to faith, but I know that I had been sowing gospel seeds. And my hope is that eventually, maybe, they'll take root in his heart. And so the point is that God is sovereign. And friends, life is so much more than just your relationships and your degree and your neighborhood and the size of your house and the car you drive. Like God has purposely put you where you're at. It's no accident that your neighbors with who your neighbors with, that you go to school with who you go to school with, that you're in the family that you're in. And maybe we should be asking the question like, Lord, maybe that's the priority. Who can I pray for? Who can I reach out to? Who is God supernaturally connecting me to that needs to hear about Jesus? And based on this passage, I believe that if we'll praise the Lord, be saturated in His Word, and be saturated in prayer, He can give us the necessary boldness to meet the occasion, to rise up, and to serve those around us. Let's pray together. Well, Father, um, as I studied and, and prepped this message, you took me back in history, and as a disciple, God, I thought about, from college age on, the many victories and joys that... I experienced in you, but also the many, the many failures. And I'm so thankful, though, God, that for those of us in Christ, there's no condemnation. And God, the last thing I want from a message like this is for anybody feeling condemned or guilty or inadequate because maybe they haven't done what you've called them to do. Uh, Lord, what I love is that with Jesus, every day is a clean slate. Every day is a fresh start. Even now, no matter what age we are, we can begin living for the people around us and not be so self-centered. And so, Father, in our minds, even now, uh, remind us of ways that we can make an impact. Maybe it's coaching a little league team or teaching at a public school or uh, being more active in our, in our neighborhoods. Bring specific people to mind, Lord, that we need to, to invest in, to love on, to pray for, to mentor. And God, give us all the necessary boldness we need to not be fearful, but to press forward in obedience. God, as we sing this morning, as we stand, I want you to help us to engage in, in pure worship. If people don't know you, may you draw them to you for salvation. And God, may we leave here with more boldness than we came in with. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.